A word for the boys and girls. I'm going to say this morning, but you may be listening to it at another time. I hope that you have your gift bag ready, but don't take anything out of it yet. What I want to talk to you about is getting ready. Something we all do, and we all do a lot of, and I know you do too. Every morning, you have to get up and get ready for whatever you're doing that day, whether it's going to school or something else, getting your clothes on, combing your hair, eating breakfast, brushing your teeth. You get ready for what you do during the day when you get home, and you're not there too long before you have to get ready for supper, which means at least washing your hands and coming to the table. Later in the day, you have to get ready for going to bed, which means doing the opposite of what you did in the morning, getting your clothes off and your pajamas on and getting into bed. I wanted to talk to you this morning, now that you're ready to listen to getting ready, about something a guy by the name of John the Baptist said. We have to get ready for Jesus. And by that he meant you have to say no to some things and yes to other things. No to things that are against God's will. No to sin. But it's not enough just to say no to that. We have to say yes to what's right and to what God wants us to do. Now take a look in the bag and find the separate bag that says, do not open before December 6th. Now that it's December 6th, we can take a look at what's inside, and you'll find in there something that looks a little strange. There's a picture of it on the screen right now. There's a, a shape that you can tell is sort of the shape of a stable, in fact, two of them, one that looks like stained glass, red and yellow and green, and another that's all black. But if you get it ready by punching out, you can't see it on this picture, punching out certain pieces on the black and pasting that over the top, you'll get something that looks like this. You'll see Jesus in the manger and Mary and Joseph and the star that led the wise men to Jesus. If you get this ready, the way it's supposed to be, it can remind you to get yourself ready for Jesus and be a teaching tool for you to hear what John the Baptist said and remember what it means. Say no to what's wrong and yes to what's right. Follow God in all you do. That's how to get ready for him. Two passages from God's word today, from the Old Testament, the last book of the Old Testament, the prophecy of Malachi, chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. 
Then suddenly, the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. So I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. And now to the Gospel according to Luke, the third chapter, verses 1 through 6, the appearance and ministry of John the Baptist, Luke 3, 1 to 6. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Eturia and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. The word of God. We do a lot of getting ready when you stop and think about it. And there's no time of the year that's better to take the time to think about it than the month of December, if you have the time. There's all that preparation for Christmas. Maybe it'll be different this year, but it will still be busy. Maybe you won't be able to entertain the way you used to, but there will probably be some sort of special entertainment in your home. And the question will be, who's going to get it all ready? When are we going to dust and clean in special ways? What are we going to serve? Will it be table food or lap food or snacks? And which ones? And whom will we invite? There's that card list. Whose name is on it? And do I have the up-to-date addresses? And do I want to send it to all the names on my list this year again? And do I have the 
stamps I like, the Christmas stamps, to put on the outside of the envelope. And will I get it to the post office in time to get it to the intended recipients? And the gift list. For whom do I need to buy a gift this year? And what's the cost limit on the gift? And if there's more than one party involved, do I have those for party A over here and party B over here and party C over here so I don't get things mixed up? Do I have them wrapped in time? Do I have them wrapped appropriately? Do I have gift receipts in case they don't like it or it doesn't fit? And the decorations. This year, my wife and I decided since we're the only two people in the house, and we will probably be the only two people in that house all the way through Christmas, we weren't going to decorate the way we usually do. We were going to cut it back and down. And during this entire past week, we decorated and left a lot of it in the basement in storage, and the house is still full. Where do you put it? Do you put it somewhere different this year than last year? Do you put out different things than you put out last year? How do you make the decision? There is so much preparation to do. Do we even dare to talk about additional time and additional in energy put into preparation? kind of preparation John was talking about. Let me take you back for a few minutes to the first preparation. I'm not even talking about Jesus or Joseph and Mary and Jesus in Bethlehem. I'm talking about the travel that required was required to go listen to John. Many of the people who went to listen to him had to walk 20 miles out into the desert. A desert so bad and so frightening and so hot, it was called the desolation. Travel in those days and in those places was not just difficult, it was dangerous. There was a proverb common in the day about travel that went like this. There are three states of misery, sickness, fasting, and travel. Anyone who was going to travel any significant distance, which meant that more than across the street or down the block, was advised before leaving to pay all of his debts, to return anything he had borrowed, to say special things to the members of his family and a special goodbye to them, to greet anyone he knew and cared about, and informed them he was leaving because it was never very certain that he'd even be back. Roads in that day were largely unsurfaced tracks, and travel on them was not just bumpy and uncomfortable, but risky to your life. The only paved surfaces were Roads that were made for the king, they were not kept in repair all the time, but only when the king was planning to make a trip that involved using one of them. Then the call went out to all near and far, make ready the way of the king. That's what John was appointed to do. 
And not just to make the way ready for the king, but to remind the people who listened to him, and I trust today that's us, to make the way ready. Prepare. Prepare the way. Prepare the way for the king. We have no choice. We must do it. It's not, shall we? But how shall we? From almost out of nowhere, John just appears, it seems. But not without introduction. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Eturia, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, what in the world's all that about? Luke is more than a history buff. He is attempting to put John, and therefore Jesus, into context, historical context, world context. There are names here of people whom history knows and to whom we can attach dates and places, and they range all the way from Jerusalem to Rome. Luke is saying something is happening for the benefit of the world. Fred Craddock wrote, the gospel is for the world before it is ever uttered by John, by Jesus, or by the church. This is God's gift to God's creation. Elizabeth Actemeyer, a commentator, describes John this way. He is a very unsettling figure. There at work in the Judean wilderness, interrupting his preaching only long enough for a lunch of locusts and wild honey. He is clothed in camel's hair and sweats under the desert sun. Beard and hair streaked with dust, feet in sandals caked with mud. He reeks of poverty and wild zeal and some rock-hard discipline. He's not a character you work up in a ceramic and place beside the sweet cherubs and lambs around the creche. He does not go with the shepherds and angels and peace on earth, goodwill toward men. And yet every one of the gospel writers has him there toward the beginning. They cannot tell the story of Jesus without him. John is integral to the story of Jesus, and both his appearing and his appearance are part of the message. Alexander McLaren said, John leapt, as it were, into the arena, full-grown and full-armed. Suddenly he's there, and almost everything we know about him, or even don't know about him, is part of the message. His mysterious past, where was he all those years? His unusual wardrobe, his odd diet, his strange behavior. All of it, however, is not only startling, it's instructive and comforting. Did you know that for 400 years before this, the voice of God had practically been silent? 
No one had heard from him. No one was speaking for him. John's sudden appearance said, God is not gone. God has not forgotten. God is not dead. John's appearing way out there in the desert, in the desolation, had prophetic overtones to it. It was a a declaration. This is a prophet speaking. This is where God had spoken to his people around Mount Sinai to give them his will for their lives. His sudden appearing spoke about the faithfulness of God who had promised in the last book of the Old Testament, the one from which we read this morning, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. John's appearing was a summons from God, not just for John, not just for the Jews, but for us, saying, come and hear and repent and follow. And the summons was grace. His appearing not only fulfilled what Isaiah had talked about when he talked about preparing the way for the Lord, but said something dramatic. Because the way that Isaiah was talking about was the way for God. The way that John was talking about was the way for Jesus. And what these two prophets were saying is, Jesus is God, Emmanuel, God with us. John's appearing shouted, God speaks, God remembers, God calls, God comes. And they rushed out into the desert to meet him. And what they saw when they got there was a scraggly kind of guy, I'm imagining, dressed in camel's hair and leather and munching bugs dipped in honey. That was his appearance. His dress, William Henriksen wrote, spoke a protest against all selfishness and self-indulgence, hence also against all frivolousness, carelessness, and false security with which many people were rushing toward their doom and were doing this with the judgment so near at hand. Another said, quite simply, even the food and dress of John preached. His appearance was one of humility, lending credence to what he himself would say, after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not fit to carry. His appearance shouted to people, I speak for God. I live for God. I serve God. I belong to God. And there is in that preaching of John not only wonder and not only instruction, but a question. Could we say the same? Are we messengers of God? Are we way preparers for God? A question not just for the last of the prophets and the first of the preachers, not just for preachers in general or this one in particular, but for each believer. Am I, like John, a part of the message and the messenger at the same time? 
In the preamble to the Charter of the United Nations, first published in 1945, are these words. We, the people of the United Nations, determined to save succeeding generations from the scourge of war, which twice in our lifetime has brought untold sorrow to mankind, and to reaffirm faith in fundamental human rights, in the dignity and worth of the human person, in the equal rights of men and women and of nations large and small, and for these ends to practice tolerance and live together in peace with one another as good neighbors, have resolved to combine these efforts to accomplish our aims. If anything, the desire for all of that has only deepened around the world. But the conviction that any one of us or all of us together can make it happen is diminishing every day. It was a world like that to which John came with some wild-eyed zealots who thought they could make a difference and bring the world back to order, but a world that for the most part was simply resigned to its fate. John brought a message of hope, a message that what people wanted so desperately could actually happen for them, but only in a single, revolutionary, startling, comforting, and uncomfortable way. Uncomfortable in the extreme, as a matter of fact. Here's the message in a couple of verses. As preached by John, as recorded by Luke, and as paraphrased by Eugene Peterson. Imagine if this were the sermon here today. brood of snakes? What do you think you're doing slithering down here to the river? Do you think a little water on your snake skins is going to deflect God's judgment? It's your life that must change, not your skin. And don't think you can pull rank by claiming Abraham as father, being a child of Abraham is neither here nor there. Children of Abraham are a dime a dozen. God can make children from stones if he wills. What counts is your life. Is it green and blossoming? Because if it's dead wood, it goes in the fire. A little bit different than the preamble to the charter for the United Nations, isn't it? I baptize you with water for repentance, Matthew quotes John as saying in his sermon. While the responses of John's desert congregation varied from person to person, each one of them saw the finger of God pointing into their faces through the words of John, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near into the faces of people who were willing to walk 20 miles out into the desolation to hear a good show and to see an amazing person do something no one else had ever done and speak the way no one else spoke and then go home. 
into the faces of those who thought they could come and take a quick bath in forgiveness and go home unchanged. Into the faces of those who went all the way out there without thinking about why they were going. Just because everybody else didn't, it was the thing to do. Into the faces of those who thought the faith and lives of their mothers and fathers could carry them through. Into all those faces the finger of God pointed. And here and now and today, same finger. Into those who come into the service of worship, whether here in this building or around the screen where you may be watching it right now, just to hear and turn it off and have lunch. Into the faces of those who hear the word and give little thought to its application to their lives and really when it comes down to it, don't think it could make much of a change in them anyway. Into the faces of those who think that by going together somewhere to worship, they take a bath in some cheap grace and get rid of their guilt for another week at least. Into the faces of those who think that their Christian upbringing and their Christian education and their Christian church membership and their Christian family is all that is required. There points the finger of God through the words of John saying a single word, repent. Not just, I'm sorry, but I have to change. I have to turn away from some things. The message of the Baptist, and so the message of God, is that confession without conversion is empty. Turning to God without turning away from sin accomplishes nothing. The confession of guilt that does not result in a conversion of life is, John the Baptist said, preparation for destruction. The axe is already at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. True preparation involves not just acknowledging sin, but turning away from it. But John went on, Jesus, who is coming, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Jesus will baptize you. He said that to people who are familiar only with baptism by immersion. Jesus will surround you, will immerse you, will envelop you in the Holy Spirit, the breath of God, helping you to hear and understand and realize what the will of God for your life is. And he will not only baptize you with the Holy Spirit, but with fire, lighting the way to him and guiding us on the path to him and helping us not only to know what he wants, but purging us of all impulses not to follow, not to obey, not to do what he calls us. Not only turning us away from sin, but turning us all the way around to do what is right. 
Luke concludes this amazing account of the sermon of John the Baptist with these unbelievable words. And with many other words, you remember the words I read to you, you brood of snakes, opening line. With many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. That's good news. But giving up and giving ourselves over to the Lord is the hope and the good news. It's customary on the second Sunday of Advent to talk about preparation and John the Baptist and Bethlehem for that matter. It's my custom not only to do that but also to talk about Wallace Perling. Did you ever have one of those experiences where God seems to be saying, by the way, I'm the one who put you up to this. I, I just wanted to nudge you again and say, that's the way. On the way to church today, I drove past an auto body shop that had a sign out front of it lit up that said something like this. I wrote it down as soon as I got here. Each of us is an innkeeper deciding if there is room for Jesus. I wanted to conclude by reading this story called Trouble at the Inn, starring Wallace Perling. For years now, whenever Christmas pageants are talked about in a certain little town in the Midwest, someone is sure to mention the name of Wallace Perling. Wally's performance in one annual production of the Nativity Play has slipped into the realm of legend. But the old-timers who were in the audience that night never tire of recalling exactly what happened. Wally was nine that year and in the second grade, though he should have been in the fourth. Most people in town knew that he had difficulty in keeping up. He was big and clumsy, slow in movement and mind. Still, Wally was well-liked by the other children in his class, all of whom were smaller than he, though the boys had trouble hiding their irritation when Wally would ask to play ball with them, or any game for that matter, in which winning was important. Most often, they'd find a way to keep him out, but Wally would hang around anyway. Not sulking, just hoping. He was always a helpful boy, a willing and smiling boy, and the natural protector, paradoxically, of the underdog. Sometimes if the older boys chased the younger ones away, it would always be Wally who'd say, can't they stay? They're no bother. Wally fancied the idea of being a shepherd with a flute in the Christmas pageant that year, but the play's director, Miss Lombard, assigned him to a more important role. After all, she reasoned, the innkeeper did not have too many lines, and Wally's size would make 
his refusal of lodging to Joseph more forceful. And so it happened that the usual large partisan audience gathered for the town's yearly extravaganza of crooks and creches, of beards, crowns, halos, and a whole stage full of squeaky voices. No one on stage or off was more caught up in the magic of the night than Wallace Perling. They said later that he stood in the wings and watched the performance with such fascination that from time to time, Miss Lombard had to make sure he didn't wander on stage before his cue. Then the time came when Joseph appeared, slowly, tenderly guiding Mary to the door of the inn. Joseph knocked hard on the wooden door set into the painted backdrop. Wally, the innkeeper, was there, waiting. What do you want? Wally said, swinging the door open with a brusque gesture. We seek lodging. Seek it elsewhere. Wally looked straight ahead but spoke vigorously. The inn is filled. Sir, we have asked everywhere in vain. We have traveled far and are very weary. There is no room for you in the inn. Wally looked properly stern. Please, good innkeeper, this is my wife, Mary. She's heavy with child and needs a place to rest. Surely you must have some small corner for her. She is so tired. Now, for the first time, the innkeeper relaxed his stiff stance and looked down at Mary. With that, there was a long pause, long enough to make the audience a bit tense with embarrassment. No, be gone the prompter whispered from the wings. No, Wally repeated automatically, be gone. Joseph sadly placed his arm around Mary, and Mary laid her head on her husband's shoulder, and the two of them started to move away. The innkeeper did not return inside his inn, however. Wally stood there in the doorway watching the forlorn couple. His mouth was open, his brow creased with concern, his eyes filling unmistakably with tears. And suddenly this Christmas pageant became different from others. Don't go, Joseph, Wally called out. Bring Mary back. And Wallace Perling's face grew into a bright smile. You can have my room. Some people in town thought that the pageant had been ruined. Yet there were others, many, many others, who considered it the most Christmas of all Christmas pageants they had ever seen. Let's pray. Oh God, forgive us for presuming that we can just walk into your presence and listen a while and then go home. Surprise us by your truth and the power of your spirit and work in us and change us and make us new. Help us to turn from what we ought not to do and to what your will for us is. Help us to prepare for Jesus to live in us. In his name we pray it. And for his sake we ask it.